If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Today's guest is Larry Cutler, and for those people who haven't heard about Larry Cutler, He's been around everywhere. He's got an extensive experience in the horse industry. As a horseman, he spent 55 years working in the industry, including as a breeder, competitor, judge, classifier for the Australian Stock Horse Society. He's very generous with his time and energy, gives a lot back to the horse industry. Um, he's worked on committees and boards and he's, you know, Australian Stock Horse. He's currently the Senior Vice Chair of the Australian Stock Horse Society Board of Directors. How are you today, Larry? Very well, thanks, Glenis. Great. Now, Larry, we start off with a favourite quote. I should have warned you about this because sometimes we sort of get people a little bit stumped. Do you have a favourite quote that you'd like to say, you know, sort of like a life thing or even just something when you're teaching people, you find yourself saying over and over again, you know, just so that people get the message that this is a really important thing to do? Yeah, I guess I guess one of the things that was drummed into me as a young person and what I tell people today is you never want to be in a hurry. And uh, that some of the biggest mistakes I've seen were when people, um, you know, they, they say, oh, I've got half an hour before I go, go and pick the kids up from mm. school. I'll just rush down and teach that horse how to go on and off a float. <laughs> and sometimes it takes a little bit longer than what you thought. And if you're in a hurry, you'll make a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I think they're on their own time, aren't they? Yeah. The thing is, if you're not in a hurry, it's when you're not in a hurry, they go, oh, I get this. Yeah, it's easy. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes down to the difference between asking them to do something and telling them. And Mm. the less time you got, the more inclined you are to tell them instead of asking them. Yep. Now, Larry, you know, I know that you've been around horses all your life and you can tell us a little bit about that, but... I'm more interested in the work. You know, you really give back to the horse industry. So tell us a little bit about how you started with horses, but then tell us, you know, because you judge, you're on committees, on board, you know, you seem to be a very giving person. So tell us about the first committees that you were on as well. Okay, well, I I, um, I grew up uh, with horses, like the couplers have been involved with horses since the 1800s. and. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly working horses and, um, you know, they were graziers in western New South Wales and southern Queensland and uh, horses have always been part of the family life. Um, I moved, or well, our family moved into Inverell um, when I was a teenager and I spent my teenage years in Inverell before going to Tokal Ag College and uh, that was where I got involved with the Australian Stock Horse Society. We had... Um, some of the early people that started with the stock horses in 71 yep. came to the college um, to do some uh, rounding up of new members, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a num- number of us students who were keen on horses and we signed up as members. That was 1976. And um, I've been a member of the Stock Horse Society ever since. 
And, you know, the Stock Horse Society has been terrific to me. I, uh, I was encouraged when I was only 21 to get involved in um, the committee of the West Gippsland Stock Horse Branch after moving from northern New South Wales to Victoria. And, and they also got me to be a classifier for the uh, West Gippsland um, area of Victoria. And from there, I got into judging as while I was competing, um, which was terrific because uh, I've I've done a lot of cattle judging, and uh, I just found judging horses um, came quite easy after judging cattle. So it's something that uh, I enjoy doing. And now that I've got a very bad back and I'm not supposed to get on a horse anymore, it's something that I can give back to the society or or to horse committees is the fact that I can still go around and uh, judge horses and cattle at, at shows and whether it be at a local show or a royal show and uh, it's just a way for me to give back to an industry that I've got a lot of satisfaction out of. So Australian stock horses themselves have been around since horses were in Australia and using horses to help with the stock but the actual Australian Stock Horse Society, can you tell us a bit about you know, why that was formed and um, what the ideal stock horse is? Yeah, it was it was formed in 1971 and it was formed by people who were absolutely passionate about the fact that the Australian horse, as they called it, um, that had been developed over probably a good 100 years, um, wasn't being recognised like mm-hmm. the... The early, early horses, um, they were just called stock horses or camp draft horses or working horses or whatever, and there was no official name given to the breed or, well, there was no official breed. And a number of people like Brian Gavin and Tiger Batterham, and uh, they all got together and decided, you know, that we actually needed to recognise that the um, that Australia had produced a horse that was consistently good at stock work, but that horse could also be played pole across on on the weekend or the kids could take it to pony club or anything like that. And so the versatility of the Australian stock horse is the first and foremost thing that was recognised. Yes, the versatility, I think, is the, the big thing, you know, because they're out doing everything. You know, they're out eventing, they're out doing dressage, jumping, pony club, as well as camp drafting and all the other sports. Yeah, correct, yeah. yeah. And and that comes about because they, um, they'd been selectively bred for a couple of hundred years to mm-hmm. be um, horses that had to be versatile. They, you know, they were, the early stock horses were put in the cart and they went into town to do grocery shopping or whatever and then they were driven out and then the kids rode them around or they went to work during the week and... And then they were the sporting horse on the weekend as well. So yes, yes, that, yes. that's what our forebears um, bred the horses to be. And so it wasn't until 1971, and it probably came about because there was a big push from the Quarter Horse Society to promote quarter horses in Australia. And I think a lot of the Australian stockmen thought, well, if we don't hurry up and recognise our own horses, um, mm. we won't, you know, we'll, we'll be just another horse. Yep. Yep, yep. You work on properties and have horses involved in that work. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So all the stock work that we've done uh, on 
on our own property here and when I've managed cattle properties um, was all done on horseback. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if someone's going to come and work on a property, um, do they need yep. those horse skills before they get started? Are they an advantage? What sort of person are you looking at to work with you on a property? Yeah, well, obviously um, you haven't got time to be teaching people to ride from square one. So mm-hmm. it's certainly an advantage. I mean, if they've gone to pony club for a few years or they've gone off and you know just gone out and ridden horses somewhere, as long as they know how to get on and off a horse and and uh, how to sit there, I mean, you know, the days of putting um, young people on horses that are going to be naughty are, are just gone. You can't afford to get uh, anyone hurt these days. So we're very selective with the genetics that, that we breed with. Yep. And um, Stallion, that we standard studs known for his good temperament and good type. So um, the progeny that, that people ride are, are all quiet horses and, um, yeah, it's not worth persevering with anything that's got a bit of dirt in it these days because Mm -hmm. there's too many good ones to put up with the bad ones. Yes, yes, for sure. But what about the, okay, so we've got the horse skills. What other sort of things? You know, what sort of personality traits, what sort of core skills, what sort of character do they need to be to work on the properties? Right. Well, I I was taught a long time ago. My grandfather and father said animals adopt the temperament of their handlers, and I find that very very true. So, if you've got someone who's um, very reactive and very loud and waving their arms around and and got a very loud voice, the animals tend to be on edge all the time. And whether that's the cattle or the horses or whatever, because those people their their way of um, of, uh, reacting to anything that happens is the they go up a few volumes with their voice and they, and they tend to wave their arms around and people if you if you're going to lose your temper or get upset well then you probably shouldn't be working with animals you're probably better off with machinery because it doesn't hurt if you smack a tractor <laughs> yes yes you're right and and thinking about the competitors. Are they of the same temperament? What do the top ones, the ones that you go, wow, that's a really good competitor? You know, they're, they're always doing well. Their horses are always seem to be happy. What do they have above the others? Yeah, well, almost the same as what I just said. They mm-hmm. they tend to be very level um, with their with their behaviour. You don't see them getting upset. They you know, you've got to have a pretty calm approach to everything you do because whatever you do with horses, if you're in a bad mood when, for whatever reason, nothing to do with a horse, if you're just in a bad mood and you decide to go down and catch a horse and ride it, that horse knows right from square one that you're in a bad mood and things could go wrong. And usually when things can go wrong, they will. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've... I've been a, a great believer that if you're having a bad day, you're better off to go fencing or do something like that because <laughs> you're not you're not going to upset an animal or whatever. You might break a wire or you might pinch your finger with the pliers, but you're not going to do any damage to anything. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I think the really top riders that have impressed me over the years have, well, I mean, Steve Brady has certainly been, a, other than my own father and family, Steve Brady's had a big effect on me and the way I think about horses and train horses and I've never ever heard him raise his voice or get upset. Sometimes you've actually got to take a step closer to him to hear what he said, but <laughs> he, 
um, he he's a, a brilliant horseman that can just watch people ride, and he'll never criticise anyone. He'll say, "You're doing a great job, but why don't you just try this?" And yeah, I've seen him turn some really good riders around in a weekend, yeah. and um, and uh, they didn't even realise that that they'd improved so much. And uh, and certainly myself's in the same boat. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've yeah. learned a lot from Steve. Good, good. What about, uh, you know, you've talked about people that influence. What about horses? Have you had any, well, I'm sure you've had quite a few horses that have influenced you, but, you know, just think about one that's um, probably influenced you the most. Sometimes horses teach you what not to do, not just what to do. Yeah, I've had a few of them. <laughs> um, I've had, yeah, I had a uh, an Ostock Marengi stallion uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, and, um, if you weren't ready to get on him and think about what you were doing, you, you could certainly end up in trouble. But probably the horse that I've, the stallion I've got now, who's in his twenties, Bo Polo, he's uh, he's been a, a great horse for me to. Um, well, he's my fifth stallion that I've owned, and um, you know you learn a little bit off each one. So I guess each time you've got one, they should should get a little bit better and. He's been uh, he's been really good because I've uh, I've camp drafted him and I've won at national level in the show ring with him and uh, won at Royals and he's just been one of those great all rounders that that we all hope we have sometime in our lifetime and he's a hundred and ten percent trustworthy to ride and um, we get people coming here to the stud that want to ride a horse that sometimes have never ever ridden before and and it's silly to say but the go-to horse is the old stallion and um, you can go and catch him if he's been turned out for months and put a saddle on him and put someone on him that can't ride and he'll just poke around and they'll have their ride. (laughs) Well, Not a lot of those horses around. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification. That is that the latest version of the book 101 Careers in the Horse Industry is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. And he throws great temperament too, doesn't he? Oh, just brilliant. Yeah, mm. we've, got a, um, we've got an heir to the throne at the moment that's a four-year-old colt and uh, Carava Park traveller and he's a... Uh, He's very similar to his old man for his uh, temperament. He's a he's a beautiful natured colt and um, just a lovely type. And uh, yeah, it would be uh, he hasn't been out and about too much because I can't ride anymore, and I've just got to get other people to campaign him for me. And uh, a lot of people go, "Oh, I'll ride him until they find out you got a colt." Then they go, "Oh no, we haven't got facilities for a colt." So. <laughs> but I'll find I'll find someone to. Um, for getting done for me, and uh, like I can call him, and he canters up to get caught, and you know, yeah, he's been yeah. shot, and 
whatnot. He's broken in and uh, did work up in the bush for, for three or four months, and the people that had him told me if I didn't go and pick him up, I'd never get him back. So he's uh, <laughs> obviously got a fair bit of him as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, you know, because you, you'd have to look back, you know, all the horses you've had and all the wins you've had and, you know, everything else. Is there one proud moment that you think outshines all the others? Um, oh, look, probably it's hard to tell. I mean, uh, I won a uh, winning a big camp draft is always good. I suppose winning um, winning at the national show with Bo Polo, he won the um, ridden stallion, stallion or cult at the national stock horse show. When he was only a four-year-old, mm-hmm. and um, and that that was a pretty big achievement. Um, winning winning uh, open draft, and I've won a couple of them with different horses. That that's always good because you've had to beat usually 150, 200 people to win them. Yep. And uh, I yeah I don't yeah I never dwell too much. Um, again, you know, my old grandfather had a heap of old sayings, and he always said. You never want to judge people by the amount of ribbons they've won. And uh, he said it'd be a sad old world. And when you were burying someone, you said, "Oh, he was a great bloke, but he only ever won one thing." <laughs> so I've never, never forgotten that. And I thought, no, I don't. Uh, I don't dwell on ribbons. I, I, I enjoy riding. I enjoy um, when I was competing. I enjoyed competing, but actually, uh, it was the social side of it, probably more than anything, that got me involved. I. Uh, I love going away to the camp drafts and when people said, oh, what was the best part of the weekend, I'd usually say the campfire Saturday night, you know. It was yeah. uh, sitting around the campfire talking to all the other competitors and what they were up to and uh, to me that that was, you know, a brilliant part of the weekend. Mm, mm. Common people, common interest. Yeah, talking to a chap the other day that said to me, you know, what's changed? And I said, the problem is now... Nearly everyone's got a big gooseneck of some sort, and instead of sitting around a campfire on the Saturday night, they tend to all go back to their own trucks, and they've got a big flat television screen and whatnot, <laughs> and uh, they're a lot more comfortable in there than sitting out around a fire. But I think they miss out on a lot. Um, you know, I think that social activity was was a really important part of well, for me anyway, was an important part of getting away for the weekend. Oh, oh. For competitors, thinking about all the competitions, you know, we've talked about the good things, and this is money aside because that's always a problem. What do you think is the biggest challenge with going out and attending the competitions? Oh, I guess it's the uh, it's not so much the getting away on the weekend to compete. It's it's really having the time during the week to be training your horse and riding because if you're going to be competitive in this day and age. You have to be able to go to the show on a horse that's fit and a horse that you've got a really good connection with. I see all the time when I'm out there judging that you can actually see the people that work at a job during the week, grab the horse out of the paddock Friday night, they might knock its mane off, give it a wash, turn up to the show Saturday, and the horse has got all the ability in the world. But because the rider hasn't been riding that horse, they make little mistakes all weekend and usually by Sunday afternoon they're just starting to get it right and then they go home and put the horse back out and go back to work again. <laughs> okay. And that and that's just the reality of today. I mean, people most people today, even 
people on the land today, a lot of them have to work off farm um, to be able to make ends meet at the moment with this yeah. drought. Yes, yeah, well, talking about the drought, and that's a challenge in itself, there would have been quite a few challenges that you've had, you know, just working on the land over the years. You want to talk a little bit uh, about that, you know, because a lot of people have got horses and may not be as aware. It's it's easy when you're living, you know, on the coast, living in suburbia, living, even having an income from another job and not being aware of the harsh realities. But, yeah, if you can talk a little bit about that, it'd be great. Yeah, well, I mean, well, especially if you're breeding, mm. um, you know, you've really got to be able to look after mares and foals and, and if you haven't got the ability or the um, uh, feed or financial backing behind you to be able to do that, I, I've said to quite a few people that are struggling at the moment, and I said, well, you know, how'd you do it a couple of years ago? Oh, well, you know, it rained. Mm. And I said, yeah, but, you know, you, you've actually got to be able to manage um, situations like this drought. And, you know, in, in my own situation, you know, we, we are just not taking outside mares at the moment because um, I don't want to be responsible for looking after other people's horses at a time when finding um, supplementary feed is difficult. And if you can find it, it's too expensive. So I think you have to... I'll just breed a couple of my own horses. I only bred one foal of my own last year, and um, and I've got three due in a couple of weeks' time. But I think I'll just I'll just worry about my own horses and looking after them. But look, I've been through a lot of drought years. I've had fires going through properties. I've had floods and all sorts of things where you've just got to pick the pieces up at the end. And I um. Apart from the old stallion here, I like to try and keep my horses relatively young, and by that I mean sort of under 12. Once a horse gets over 12 years of age, I'll, I'll either sell them or give them away. I've given away a few mares over the years that I worked and, and uh, competed on and that sort of thing, and then I've bred a couple of foals out of them. And then they get to 12, 13, and I think, well, they've still got plenty of life left in them, but I've got a, a daughter coming on or a son coming on or whatever, and um, so I'll, I'll give that old mare away. I've given quite a few horses away over the years to kids to do pony club and that sort of thing, and um, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that, watching yeah. watching other people ride my horses as well. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Just taking you back now to you spend a lot of time judging but what's a common fault you see when you're training judges? What are judges that don't, maybe don't mean to be a bad judge or a, a, a not a good judge, but what's a common thing that you see for someone who's starting off judging or maybe someone who's been judging for a while and they just don't realise that they're doing this? Actually, the, the biggest fault I find with horse judges, and it comes from my experience in the cattle industry, is they go out there to find all the faults with the horses. And because you don't have to get on a microphone like we do with the cattle judging and justify why you put the animals where you have, a lot of the horse judges go out and they go, oh, that one's got a bad leg, oh, that one's got something else wrong with it, that one paddles. When we go out in the cattle industry, we go out there to find the one that we really like mm-hmm. and then the next one that we really like because what we've got to do when we finish judging is get on a microphone and go, 
that animal I've got in first place is the best animal in the ring because, and and you have to be able to explain that all the way down the line. And you know, I've judged you know cattle classes that have had sixty head in them, and um, and you've got to be able to comment on animals without being derogatory but actually be able to physically talk about something that when they go back into the shed after judging, people can go along and go, oh, yeah, I see what he was talking about, mm-hmm. and, and they can do that. With the, with the horse judging, because people can just go, oh, yeah, first, second, third, fourth, put the ribbons on them, turn around and walk away, yep. they don't have to get on the microphone, they don't have to justify it, and I've seen some horrendous judging and I thought, wow, you know, I'd love to give you a microphone and get you to explain why you've placed them where you did because I, there's no way now and I could see how those horses were placed where they were. Yeah. There was a horse at Melbourne Royal Show, went around, uh, did a whole circle on the wrong lead mm-hmm. and got supreme ridden. Wow. And I thought, you've got to be kidding. But um, anyway, and that was supposedly a, a well-respected judge. But um, yeah, it was a was a really bad look from where I was sitting. Yeah, yeah, yes, and probably from lots of people in the ring too that are watching. You know, that, oh, uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 Look, I've yeah. I've never minded. I've shown a lot of cattle. I've shown a lot of horses, and you never mind getting beaten by a better one. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've been I've been out in the ring, and you know, and I've seen some really top workouts, and I thought, oh wow, you know. There's your winner, and and usually they do, and um, sometimes you'll win one that you shouldn't have, and sometimes someone else will win one. But that that's just competition. You, it evens itself out over the time, and uh, if you keep riding and keep competing, you'll you'll win some, you'll lose some, but that's the way it is. Do you think this is going to be implemented in the future? That um, you know, at every competition, the judge has to justify it. I mean, if you if you look at um, you know scores like show jumping, you know horse knocks a rail, it yep. knocks a rail, it's on the ground. Dressage yep. judges, you know, at the higher levels, they're putting up their scores for each movement. But um, yep. you know, just just that bit of a feedback from the judge and and why, you know, because you see it at the odd show, you know, why did you do that or what did you think of these horses? Yeah. Um, but just as a general thing, even even just as part of training to report back to a board, do you think it's in the process of um, being implemented? Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm not sure whether you've seen the judging sheets that the Australian stock horses do now, but mm-hmm. our, our hack patterns and working patterns and a lot of the stuff we do are all broken down similar to what you're talking about in the dressage world. Mm. And so a, a particular, like a haunch turn, might be out of 10 points and then, you know, canter a circle left with a flying change and things. And each of those... Uh, areas of um, change and uh, has to be scored on a sheet so that at the end you've got a score out of a hundred, and a competitor can say, "Oh, gee, you know, I thought I, I thought I would have done better than that," and that they can have a look at the sheet and go, "Oh, geez, I must have missed my flying change," or mm-hmm. you know, I've done a whole circle there on the wrong lead or something yep. like that, and it's really good. I. I must admit, when it first came in, I found it difficult to change from placing them in in order as they as they worked. Yep. But once I got used to the system, I thought it was fantastic because it was great for me to go back and and look and review what I'd done and gone, oh well, you know, if that 
person had have got that right, they would have gone from fifth place to first place, you know. Yes. And so part of what my job now is a, a national judging assessor is to go around and actually teach our stock horse judges um, how to use that point score system um, because five being satisfactory, um, three and two points is sort of unsatisfactory level, one is an attempt, and then we go above five is um, uh, good and then very good and then basically 10 out of 10 is your perfect score. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a horse can go out and score a one um, for one part of that workout, but if they're scoring nines and tens for the rest of it, um, they can still win. Yep, okay, yep, yep, that makes sense. Whereas once upon a time someone would go out, miss their flying change and go, oh, well, that's it, I've blown it now, mm. and, and then basically ruin all the rest of their ride as well. Whereas now we know that, that the pattern is broken down into usually 10 sections worth 10 points each. And so if you blow one little section of that pattern, <laughs> don't panic. Just, just you know, get back into the, into the pattern and get everything else right and you could still end up with a really good score. Yep, yep. Now, I, I know you're pretty busy. Your job as a national judge, assessor, must keep you busy. Yep. And I know that, you know, watching the horses that you've given away, you know, watching the kids in Pony Club bring them on, and that must be pretty exciting to um, see that. You know, what else? I mean, what's the main things you're looking forward to in the next 12 months or so? You've also got your three foals coming, ready to come on the ground as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and no, I've got two-year-olds and yearlings around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing this four-year-old colt get going. Uh, uh, I think he'll be uh, pretty exceptional when he's out there. I'm, I'm out and about seeing a lot of horses, and he's going to be very, very competitive um, when he does get out and about. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing him get going. Um, I've got a few judging jobs uh, coming up myself, and I've also got some judging uh, assessments to do in the next 12 months. Um, I've decided to step down off the board of directors of the Stock Horse Society at the AGM next year because I've just uh, got a fair bit on my plate. And last year I was, I was very sick with uh, influenza and pneumonia and um, spent 14 days in a coma in hospital. Oh, and, wow. Uh, the... Uh, the, people, the uh, specialists that's looking after me uh, said there were three there the day I came in and none of them thought I'd be going home. So wow, wow. I'm on, yeah. I'm on borrowed time. So I thought, <laughs> no, I need to get out and enjoy myself a little bit. Um, yep. I'm not sure how much time I've shaved off my life, but I'm going to make the most of what's left. And uh, So I've, I've been on committees and boards of directors since I was 21 and I'm now 61 so it's, I've put a fair bit back into <laughs> something that I love doing and um, but I'm, I'm going to spend a bit of time doing other things as well. Mm-hmm. I'll still be there. I've, I've told the um, Victorian Management Council I do the PA at the state championships and a couple of the branch shows and um, I enjoy doing that. That keeps me involved and um, I just I, I just Actually, I'm a horse tragic, that's all. I love getting out there and helping people and, and seeing things get better. That's that's the best part, you know. When you 
see young kids and really struggling when they're sort of nine, ten, and if you can give them a little bit of advice and then you see them again when they're 15, 16 and they're little stars, that, that's just brilliant, you know. Mm. You, you can't do any better than that. No, that's right, that's right. Larry, this has been, yeah, really good talking to you. But before we go, if you were going to summarise your philosophy with horses just into a sentence or two, how would you do that? Um, okay, so I I basically think that you you start off with type, temperament and confirmation. Mm-hmm. When you get type and temperament and confirmation right, you can turn that horse into anything. And, uh, you know, I bred a horse that's, um, he had three generations of open camp drafters on both sides of his pedigree and a lady that got him came second in the Gary Owen on him. And yeah, um, wow. so he's a, that, that sort of just tells you that if you breed them that are put together right and they're a good type and they've got a good temperament, and he was the only horse in the workout at the Gary Owen that was able to do a flying change mm. and he just did it effortlessly and... Yeah, it was a was a brilliant workout, and and you know I've got heaps of kids. We sold a three year old filly last year that uh, went to a nine year old girl, and um, she'd only been riding for I think three years, and she's riding a little three year old at Pony Club and won a heap of ribbons. And you know they, I'm I'm not really into Facebook that much, but she rings me up and says, "Have a look on Facebook. I sent you a picture." <laughs> and uh, I get a real buzz out of seeing that. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's sort of you know where I'll be. I've I think I've we worked out the other day. I've bred just a bit over two hundred horses since I started breeding horses, and they're out there doing all sorts of things from playing polo across to camp drafting, showing pony clubbers, weekend trail riders, and uh, and people are just having fun with them, and I get just as much of a buzz out of people sending me, you know, stories and pictures on what they're doing on the horses and as when I was riding them myself. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry, there's so many things that we could just keep talking about. I'd love to have you back again just to, uh, you know, you've just got such an experience in the horse industry in Australia and the breeding. I mean, we haven't even touched on lots of things that you've been doing. So um, if people do want to contact you, Larry, what's the best way? Ah, oh, they can uh, get in contact with me. Uh, I've got an email mm-hmm. or uh, or a mobile phone. So you want those? Say them now, and we'll also have them on your page, which would be horsechats.com slash Larry Cutler, or just go to horsechats.com and search for Larry, and you'll find those. We'll have them on the bottom of your page. But, yeah, Larry, I think if you can give them now, that would be great. Yep, so it's just Larry, L-A-R-R-Y, at Caraba Park, K-A-R-R-A-B-A park.com.au and my mobile number is 0448 Brilliant. All right, Larry, thank you very much for having a chat to us today and um, hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to help whenever I can. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352.
Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.